Hi everyone, um, I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. So tonight there is a solution, page 17, right? We could spend like a whole bunch of time just on the title. There is, right? There really is a solution, a meaning one. Now there may be others out there. And in fact, in the book, it says that we don't have a monopoly on God, but we have an approach that worked for us. So, and it, there's a solution to our problem that we can't stop binging. We can't manage our own lives. There is a solution. Well, what's the solution? And we're gonna see in eight pages um, where it says, but for the grace of God, there would have been countless more demonstrations of failure. So the solution, the grace of God, and this talks about how to find it. So we're gonna just start on page 17 where it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous, or for us, Overeaters Anonymous, know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill, nearly all have recovered. So I think there's a connection there between feeling hopeless and recovering. That generally, if we don't feel hopeless, we're not going to recover. Why? I mean, is God sitting up there saying, Oh yeah, if you're not hopeless, I'm not gonna bother giving you the time of day. Well, no, of course not. But until I felt hopeless, I wouldn't have been willing to do the work that's required. Because this work, while it's simple to understand, it's hard to do, as we'll, as we'll see, because it involves um, ego deflation, something that I personally did not find fun at all. And I don't think any addict worth his or her salt finds it fun. But if we're hopeless, we're willing to do whatever it takes. So know that if you are here and you feel hopeless, this program is for you and you can recover. And they say, it doesn't matter your politics, your religion, your race, your social status, none of that matters. Um, there's something that joins us all. And at the bottom of the page, they say, we have discovered a common solution, a way out on which we can absolutely agree. I mean, try to get two alcoholics to agree on anything. But here, the original people who um, were involved in the putting this book together, there are a hundred of them absolutely agreed on it. So what is it? Well, if we turn the page, page 18, they first start talking about what our problem is, right? Because if there's a solution, by definition, there's a problem. And they say it's an illness, an illness of this sort. And we've come to believe it an illness. Illnesses require outside intervention, right? If I have pneumonia, I need penicillin. If I have diabetes, I need insulin. If I have cancer, I need chemo or what, you know, some other form of treatment. So they're telling us this is an illness and it needs some kind of outside intervention. And it tells us some of the fruits of this illness, right? If I had pneumonia, I would be coughing and wheezing well, with this illness, it tells us what the, what the symptoms are. Misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Um, these are all the symptoms. 
but they're telling us that um, we don't treat symptoms here, we treat the root cause. And this illness of compulsive eating is the root cause of all these things. So they say, okay, you know, hopefully this volume will help. And we found that when psychiatrists, psychologists, wives, parents, friends try to talk to us, they really haven't had much success. They say, but, and so now we, this can also be a word um, not only to those struggling, but to those who want to help the person who's struggling. But who can be the most helpful? The X problem, we'll say eater, who has found this solution, who knows himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another compulsive eater in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. This is different than doctor-patient um, because there's no shame. And again, I don't come on to someone and say, oh yeah, you binge? Here, there's a solution. Do what's in this textbook. I sit there and tell her my story, how I used to binge, some of the horrible things I did to my family, to people I knew. Um, so that there's no element of shame, so that the person feels safe. And I talk about how I used to binge and the psycho things I did with food um, and that I don't do them anymore. So ideally, the person will say, what did you do to get better? And then they tell us, um, I found nine things in the next paragraph that can help us when we're trying to help someone. So it says one, that we've had the same difficulty, right? We're not some doctor sitting across a table. We've been there. Two, that we obviously know what we're talking about. You know, we have to really know this book, know the solution, know what it takes to get better to help someone. Three, that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with the real answer. Hence the lipstick. We want to show up looking like we our whole deportment shouts we have an answer. So even, you know, we don't want to be someone who looks like we just crawled out of bed three minutes ago and wishes we were back in bed. Like we are excited about life because we have found the solution. You know, our lives are filled with joy and we should convey that to others. Four, no attitude of holier than thou. I mean, think about it. If I have pneumonia and I took the penicillin and I got better from it, and now I'm talking to you about, the about pneumonia and penicillin, all I am is someone who happened to get the prescription for penicillin a few days, a few weeks, a few months before you did. Doesn't make me any better. I had pneumonia just like you. No holier than thou. Five. Nothing except the sincere desire to be helpful. I don't want to collect notches on my belt. Like, look how many people I got recovered. All I want to do is try to be helpful. Whether the people I help get recovered or not, that's between them and God. Six, no fees to pay. I always um, make clear to tell people who I sponsor that um, when you recover, there's no going out and hanging up a shingle of an 
eating disorders, you know, person and getting money for what we got for free. The person who transmitted this program to me said, the day an angel shows up on my door with a bill from God on a silver platter, that's the day I'll start charging. We do this for free. Um, not because we're so nice, but because that's what we have to do in order to stay sober, in order to stay abstinent. Um, no axes to grind. We are not the anti-sugar, anti-flour police. If normal people want to have a bowl of ice cream, you know, five pieces of pizza, none of my business. I have no axe to grind with the sugar industry. Eight, no people to please. So this is tough sometimes um, for a newcomer, right? Because we often want to please our sponsors. But ideally, our sponsors help us um, as my sponsor told me, a sponsor's job is to help a sponsee put her hand in God. That's a sponsor's job, to help my sponsee learn how to hold God's hand. She doesn't have to please me. Nine, no lectures to endure. That means when people are having trouble, we don't sit on, get on our soapbox and tell them how bad they are. We just don't because it doesn't help. And it says, these are the conditions that are effective. So top of 19, it says, we don't make a sole vocation of this work. So again, we don't become eating disorders therapists. And it says, interesting, that we don't think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. So they're saying, even if we worked full-time at this, we wouldn't be more effective. This isn't to be our sole vocation. They, then they say, elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Now that does not mean you need to put down the alcohol or put down the food for 48 or 72 hours as a beginning and then work the steps. They are saying actually a most beautiful thing that, yeah, you're going to work these steps. God's going to remove this food obsession from you, but that is only the beginning. That's just God's opening act there is so much more. And they say, even more important is how we demonstrate these principles in our homes, occupations, and affairs, how we live our life. We get the power to live our lives with integrity and, and joy. And it talks about um, practicing principles, demonstrating these principles. So someone might ask, what are these principles we're supposed to practice? And let's see, is she on here? Yes, Karen M went through the entire text section of the big book and made a list of the spiritual principles in this book. So if someone could put a link to it, um, we can all know what we're supposed to be practicing, even from the beginning. So it says, all of us spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort we're going to describe. So much of our time. So here's what I would say, much of our spare time. So obviously we have to sleep. We have to go to work. We have to take care of our hygiene and our health, and we have to take care of our families. Everything else is spare time. And much of it should be spent on this work. So this means if you're working through the steps, much of your time, which I take to mean more than 50% of your spare time should be spent working these steps. 
if you're through the steps, much of our spare time should be spent trying to help others. So, um, and this is how we stay in recovery. I'm thinking back of the people I know who've gone through the steps and some unfortunately have fallen by the wayside. And I think of the ones who haven't. And what do they have in common? One of the main things is they spend much of their spare time with others. They don't just take one sponsee at a time. They do it until they feel like, okay, if I took another one, I couldn't give the ones I have enough attention much of our spare time. So they go ahead and they say, okay, you know, we started this program and we see people getting better. How are we going to help more? And they say, we've decided to write a book. So that's how this book came to be. And they said in this book, they're bringing forth their combined experience and knowledge, right? A doctor could read all about this and have the knowledge can't transmit it the way one compulsive eater could to another. Um, and if I have the experience of compulsive eating, but I don't have the knowledge of how to recover, well, that's not going to do anyone good. So it says we have both. And it says there's a few things that we're going to have to discuss in this book and that we're all going to have to come to term with. Things medical, like why do we react differently than other people when we ingest certain things? Um, psychiatric, like our thinking, we are not therapists. And, you know, we tell people that, um, social, how to get along with people, religious, meaning we're going to talk about God, not specific religions. And they say, we know all these things are controversial and we'll try to avoid it. Um, um, because people think my way, my religious way, my political way, my social way is the right way. And then what do they jump in and say? Bottom of 19, most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings, the things they do wrong, and viewpoints, the way they think, and a respect for their opinion are attitudes which make us more useful to others. So in order to recover, I have to be useful to others. And what gets in the way of that? My intolerance of other people's shortcomings and their viewpoints and my disrespect for their opinions. So um, most of you know Melissa, my best friend who, you know, we, we run this together. We have different religions. We have different political views. We have different views on a lot of things and it doesn't matter. We are just tolerant and more than tolerant we're just accepting of each other's views because what um it talks about again the beginning of this chapter what we have in common camaraderie joyousness and democracy um like people who've been rescued from shipwreck and then have the privilege of helping others get rescued it doesn't matter what our views on certain things are so it tells us right after that, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers or eaters depends upon our constant thought of others and how we can help meet their needs. So my life depends upon my thinking of others, the others in my life, and how I can help meet their needs. So again, if you're a brand newcomer, you can start doing that. You can say, okay, who are the others in my life? 
most of us have a family. If not, we have neighbors, friends. What needs do they have that I can reasonably meet? Um, and why is this so important? Well, in chapter five, it tells us what the root of this illness is. Um, and the, it says selfishness and self-centeredness. That we think is the root of this illness. We are people who are selfish and self-centered. So, um, and that's the roots. Well, we need a root transplant. That's really what this program is about. So we replant in God, but we water the plant with unselfish good deeds. So we wanna learn how to be helpful to others. And if I'm sitting there, even if I'm trying to be helpful, but if I'm looking down my nose at you because you don't have the right religious, political, or social views, you're not gonna want my help. People don't ever wanna be seen as charity cases. Okay, then they continue on. You may have asked yourself why all of us became so very ill from drinking or eating. And it says, why? Um, and what do I have to do? And they say, okay, we're gonna answer this, but not quite yet. We're gonna talk about the different types of drinkers or for us compulsive eaters. And on page 20 and 21, they talk about it. They talk about why can some people say, yeah, I could take it or leave it alone. Um, you know, why can some people eat half a cookie and leave it? Um, and they say, okay, there's three types of problem eaters. The first we'll call a moderate eater. And that's the person who has very little trouble giving up extra food if they have a reason. So we'll take example A, my husband. So a number of years ago, he went to the doctor for a physical and the doctor said, Fred, you are 15 pounds overweight and you have high blood pressure. You need to lose those 15 pounds. So Fred came home, told me that, and he lost the 15 pounds. And that was, I don't know, close to 18, 20 years ago. And he's kept it off. And if the number on the scale ever creeps up a couple pounds, Fred will cut back a little and that's it. And he has no trouble. I don't understand that. He may as well be a Martian in that area, right? But that's a moderate eater. But then they talk about hard eaters and these are a little tricky. So these are the people who um, it, it gets in their way. They may die early. They may be impaired physically and mentally. Um, however, if they have a sufficiently strong reason, they can stop or moderate. But unlike my husband who just did it on his own, this person finds it difficult and may need medical attention. And these, I believe, are some of the people who I met in Overeaters Anonymous who didn't work steps, but they needed the structure and support of going to meetings, calling in their food, getting the hugs, having the accountability. They needed that and it worked for them. But structure and support alone will not work for a real compulsive eater. So that's why for six and a half years, I was going to meetings, I was calling in my food, I was doing the assignments and I was getting progressively worse and worse.
because those things um, are helpful and somewhat necessary. But again, it's like if I had diabetes and I went to Diabetics Anonymous and there was a whole group of people who were diabetics and some of them maybe weren't as far advanced and they could control it by diet and exercise. And they were sitting there saying how they got better. But I was a severe diabetic who needed insulin. And I'd sit there and I'd get the hugs and the support and see all these other people getting better. Well, they're not real diabetics. And then suddenly um, someone introduces me to insulin and I get better. We are people who need to be introduced to God as we understand God, and then we can get better. Just going to meetings won't do it. We are people who need to form a relationship with God. And they say, what about the real alcoholic, page 21, or real compulsive eater? May start off as a moderate eater, may become a continuous hard drinker. Some people start out moderate, then go to hard, then go to real. I was obsessing about those Tam Tam crackers when I was four years old in nursery school. I, you know, I was a hard eater by the age of four. Um, so what happens to hard eaters? It says, you know, at some stage they begin to lose all control of their food consumption once they start to drink or for us eat the first compulsive bite either something um, that triggers us physically or something outside our food plan. If I know, if I plan four ounces of, let's say blueberries and I have four and a half ounce, I don't even wanna know where this illness might take me. You know, then it might be four and a half gallons of ice cream. So away from the foods that, that we know are triggers and away from eating, more than the boundaries of our food plan. So let's see, um, we're gonna go to page 22 where they ask the question that we all spend thousands of dollars in therapy trying to answer, why? Why am I a compulsive eater? And um, here's what they say. Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. That's all they're gonna give us. They say, we don't know, there's different opinions. So here's what I'll tell you. Here's why we all wanna know, because we wanna know who to blame. And it's usually our parents. And they're saying, no, if anything, it's our own selfishness and self-centeredness that allowed this illness to blossom and grow in us. So we can't blame, we don't know. I mean, imagine someone who, who just gets you know a cancer diagnosis saying to the doctor, okay, or going to therapy and saying, therapist, I need you to help me figure out how I got cancer. No, we don't do that, right? The cancer patient will say, what's the treatment that I need to get better? And that's what we need to do. What do we need to get better? It says, because we are people who once we take the first compulsive bite, something happens in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible to stop. Okay, so this way, you know, sometimes people say, okay, it's all about knowing 
your trigger food. And I would say that's partly right. Of course, we have to know our trigger foods. But there are plenty of people who could make a list of all their trigger foods and they're still eating compulsively. That means the problem isn't the food. So I'll give you an example. Um, I'm allergic to cats, right? If I go near a cat, I'm liable to have an asthma attack. Um, but it is irrelevant to me because I fanatically stay away from cats. But what if I kept going near cats anyway and saying, oh, this time's different. This time it'll be okay. There'd be a problem. Um, so on top of page 23, they say the observations about what happens when a person takes the first drink or for us, the per first compulsive bite would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. My friend L, her husband saw if he had even one glass of wine, he couldn't stop. So he said, you know what? I'll never again have a glass of wine. And as far as I know, he hasn't. So to him, it's academic and pointless what happens when a person takes the first drink, or for us, it would be the first compulsive bite, academic and pointless. Um, so it says, therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic or compulsive eater centers in his mind rather than in his body. So our bodies may have abnormal reactions to sugar or whatever substance, but they're saying that's not the main problem. Because if someone knew like, oh, every time I eat one cookie, I end up eating the whole box, a sane person would say, therefore, I will never have another cookie. But they're saying if we can't do that, the main problem centers in the mind. It doesn't start in the mind. It centers in the mind. In chapter five, it says, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So we recover in our spirits and our mind just kind of automatically gets healed. We're able to start thinking straight. So the main problem centers in the mind. Um, and it says, if you ask someone why he started, he'll give you a bunch of excuses, but they don't really make sense in the light of the havoc it causes. Um, and it says, if you tell someone who's an alcoholic or still in the food this, and here's the three forms of our denial syndrome. We laugh it off, we get irritated, or we refuse to talk, right? That's how we react. You know, we make a joke out of it, we get nasty, or we clam up. And it says, but you know, once in a while, we tell the truth. And the truth is, we don't know. We don't know why we keep doing it. And on page 24, they say, um, they tell us the problem isn't lack of desire or lack of knowledge, it's lack of power. And I wish someone had pointed this out to me during my first six and a half years of OA, where I had a very strong desire to stop eating compulsively. I never got more than two weeks in that first six and a half years. And a lot of times I couldn't even make it to lunch. Um, 
it says at a certain point in the drinking or eating of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking or eating is of absolutely no avail. So the people who said to me or about me, you must not really want to stop, they were incorrect. A person can want to stop more than anything and be unable to. You know, sometimes if I talk to a person who's struggling and I say, what are you not willing to do? And she'll say, well, I guess I'm not willing to put down the food because I'm still in the food. And I say, no, no, you can have a desire to stop, but not the power. Then at that point, of course, we need to make a commitment to do whatever it takes to gain access to that power. But the problem isn't lack of desire. So if anyone's been telling you, you don't really want to stop, they may not be correct. I mean, they may be, you may not want to, but it, it is possible to want to stop, but to be unable to. And then they tell us why. And paragraphs in italics, page 24, whenever something in italics, that means like, guys, pay attention. Um, most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice. We've lost the power of choice. I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean if there's like a bag of potato chips, there's some little gremlin that comes in and like forces my hand? Well, no, that's not what it means. It says our willpower is non-existent. And then it tells us why. And I'll help unpack this because this is, this is a bit dense. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink or the first compulsive bite. So they are telling me that for normal people, the memory of their suffering and humiliation is a defense. So we can think of examples like um, a sunburn, right? I grew up in Miami, go to the beach, you know, and I know if we go and don't put on sunscreen, get a serious sunburn and we peel and it hurts. So we learn we have to put on sunscreen, right? The memory of our suffering prompts us to put on sunscreen. The memory of my suffering of having an asthma attack from being near a cat, even though it's been years, keeps me away from cats now and forever. Um, but it says when it came to food, we couldn't do that. Well, how come? So the best way I understand it is that there's a bridge connecting our memory and our conscious mind, where our will is, where we make decisions. Um, so if we talk about cats, right? So I had a bunch of asthma attacks. So stored in my memory are all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if someone invites me to her house and she has a cat, and I ask, by the way, I would say, do you have a cat? Um, and she says, yes. My memory grabs the data points that say, Cats give you asthma attacks. You know, it's here it happened this day, that day, that day. My memory grabs a data point, generates a little thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger, cats will give you asthma attacks, don't do it. 
I'm cleaning up after dinner, right? And I'm about to wipe down the stove where I was just cooking. Up there in my memory, touching hot stoves gives you a burn. Don't do it. And my memory generates a thought to run across the bridge. Danger, hot stove, wait 20 minutes for the stove to, to cool down. And I don't touch the stove. Let's talk about food, right? So there I was in college. I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies. They'd come in a box of 20. I'd go out and buy them, tell myself I'm going to have one or two. We can all guess how that story ended. And so stored in my memory are all these data points of how I'm just going to have one or two, but I end up eating the whole box and I'm miserable. I hate myself. I feel disgusting. So there I go, about to go to the drugstore, buy my box of cookies to just have one or two. And my memory grabs the data points, hurriedly generates a little thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger. You're not going to be able to stop at one or two. You're going to eat all 20. You're going to hate yourself. You're going to be miserable. Don't do it. Except unlike with sunburns and cats and hot stoves, where the thought could get across, the bridge is broken and the thought doesn't get across. So all those memories of the pain and humiliation never make it to my conscious mind where I make decisions. So I have no defense against the first compulsive bite because the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind, my will is broken. How does it get broken? Again, we don't know, but once it's broken, it can never get fixed. So they say, okay, when this sort of thinking is fully established, um, we are beyond human aid. So that means even the group, group can give us support, but can't keep us abstinent long-term. Page, top of page 25, but for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. The solution, the grace of God, unmerited favor, a gift. Well, how do we get it? There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, and again, the helping other people, the being honest, which the process requires for its successful consummation. That's the work we do, but that's not what gets us better. Again, it's the grace of God. So, this, so it's like if I'm um, in a flood and the police are out with their bullhorns saying, get to the roof. You know, the, that's where the helicopters are going to come rescue you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to sit in my house until the flood waters start rising and rising. And I see them rising quite high and I'm afraid of drowning. I am going to quickly climb my attic stairs and get to the top of the roof. It may be hard, right? Going through this house that's getting full of water, you know, making my way to the attic, opening the chain, pulling down the rickety steps, climbing to the roof, and then the helicopters come and I'm rescued. Do I go back and say, yeah, it was me 
climbing those rickety attic steps. I rescued myself by my hard work. No, let me never say that. The grace of God that comes down and rescues me. Um, we do this work to show them that we want to be rescued. And it says, okay, that's what this program requires. And if we're hopeless, there's nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet, spiritual tools, honesty, unselfishness, self-sacrifice for the good of others. And then it tells us the results. We have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. The fourth dimension of existence. Bill Wilson talked about that in um, the chapter we did last week. And he talks about how he was catapulted, another word for rocketed. Um, notice both terms were passive. We are catapulted, we are rocketed, we don't take ourselves into the fourth dimension. And how does he describe it? I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. We get happiness, we get peace, and we get usefulness. And then it tells us, the great fact is just this and nothing less. So I will say, guys, settle for nothing less. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized. I love that word. It always reminds you of like Les Mis, right? Like a big revolution, except in this revolution, the good guys win, right? We've had deep and effective spiritual experiences that have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and toward God's universe. Like the way we think about things is just different. What's different? The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives or into our hearts and lives, either way works, in a way which is indeed miraculous. That God has come into my heart my like selfish, self-centered, nasty heart and done a housekeeping job and continues to do it. And it's miraculous and keeps doing things for us that we could never do for ourselves. And they're saying, okay, guys, you have a choice here. If you're as seriously compulsive eater as we are, there's no middle of the road solution. If life is impossible, there's two alternatives. One, go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation. Doesn't sound fun. Blotting it out with going into food comas. Two, accept spiritual help. And it says we do this, top of page 26, because we want to and are willing to make the effort. And then they tell a story of a guy who went to see Dr. Young, one of the most like famous um, psychiatrists of all time. And the doctor said, you are a hopeless alcoholic. And he said, I've never seen anyone like you recover. And he says, are there any exceptions? And he says, well, yeah. Every now and then alcoholics have vital spiritual experiences. And again, it's descri described again, 
huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces are cast to a side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them. And the doctor says, I've been trying to do this in you, but I'm never successful with an alcoholic of your description, but of course not, because only God can do that. And the friend says, well, you know, I go to church, so that should help. But the doctor says, no, you need to have this kind of rearrangement in your soul. Um, and thank God this alcoholic did. Page 28, they say, we in our turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. Drowning men don't say, what color is the life preserver? Um, they just take hold of it. And then what a beautiful sentence. What seemed at first a flimsy read has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. Again, sometimes we look for clues about God in this big book and here it is. God is loving and God is powerful. So it may look like a flimsy read, but that's because we're spiritually nearsighted. The loving and powerful hand of God. And what do we get? A new life a design for living. And they continue, they say, okay, we have no desire to convince anyone that there's only one way by which faith can be acquired. So there's not just one way, but I'll say, but it must be acquired. We must get faith. Um, and again, we'll talk about that in depth in two chapters when we do um, We Agnostics. So it says all of us, no matter our race, creed, color, um, beliefs, we are children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship. So a living creator, not the wind, not some impersonal energy. I can't have a relationship with impersonal energy. Um, and how do we get this relationship? As soon as we're willing and honest enough to try. And it says, doesn't matter what religion you are, doesn't matter if you have no religion. It says, okay, next chapter, we're going to go more in depth about the illness of alcoholism. And then there's a chapter for people who think they don't believe in God. Um, and it says, um, then we're going to give you clear cut directions. I'm on page 29, clear cut directions on how to recover. And these are followed by stories that are in the back of the book. And it tells why they have these stories. It says each individual in these stories describes in his own language, from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God, right? The point of our stories is to show others how we got a relationship with God. And it says um, our hope, the hope of the people who wrote this book is that people desperately in need, that's the audience, right? Not someone who wants to lose 10 pounds to look good at her high school reunion and make that boy who didn't like her feel bad that he didn't like her. That's not our audience. It's people who feel desperately in need. will see these pages and believe that um, they can say, I am one of them. I must have this thing. What is this thing? A relationship with God. That's why we share so that others will want this and do the work and that, you know, so that we can be privileged in helping 
these people who come for help put their hand in the hand of God as they understand him. And with that, I pass.